Hello, I'm Eddie Temple-Morris. And I'm Nick Hawkes. We very much hope you've enjoyed our previous conversations with some incredible guests. Uh, this time on Trailblazers, our amazing guest is none other than Goldie. Yeah, and as usual, it's just a taster, really, of the music that was uh, significant to, to Goldie and, and his journey here. Over at Deezer.com, you get the tracks in full, and you'll also uh, get to hear uh, a bunch of special Trailblazers playlists there that, from ourselves and our guests. I guess the one to uh, the thing to highlight on this recording was the fact that uh, Goldie was very relaxed with us, wasn't he? And especially yeah. for, the, the, for, the, for the first sort of seventy-five percent of it and then because of because suddenly he realized that he had to be somewhere the very la- the last bit of the interview just is a, he, he you know he it wasn't as he, he kind of had to get the info out a bit more mm. so i guess the sort of tempo of it sort of accelerates i guess that's all you need to know to get the most out of this one so uh, let's begin Deezer originals trailblazers goldie Welcome, dear friends, to another episode of Trailblazers, brought to you by the lovely people at Deezer. My name is Eddie Temple-Morris, and by my side, as ever, XL Recordings and Positiva founder Nick Hawks. Together, each time, we light a warm and friendly fire and invite another dance music legend like Nick to chat to us by the fireside, as it were, and to talk about the cultural fires that they started and the tunes that soundtrack their fascinating lives. This week's Firestarter was a well-known graffiti artist until he became even better known as a DJ, producer, connector and pioneer responsible for the first ever jungle tune to be playlisted by BBC Radio 1, the boss of genre-defining label Metalheads Records, godfather of drum and bass and many people's favourite James Bond villain, Goldie. I think I'll leave now. Yeah, really. um, you go. Yeah, yeah. I, had to, I had to say the Bond thing because my yeah. my, son, my son knows. Of course, we know you for what we know you, but my son knows you as the James Bond villain. Well, more 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 likened to meteorites. I always felt oh, that when uh, when I heard that radio egg tune, he said, oh, "You're going to get hit by a meteorite." You know, just just only me is going to get hit by a meteorite. I've always <laughs> felt that that's it. My impending doom of trailblazing is, is getting hit by meteorites at the end of all of this. Really, so well, you know. well, that'd be pretty special in one way. Outside from the fact that you would yeah. die. You know, very, very quickly. Yeah. It would be, you know, unique, unique and amazing, like your life oh, has been. It's been. It has been crazy. I really do think it's been a bit mad, to be honest, though. I do pinch myself thinking, has that really happened? Is that really, has that really, has that really happened in my life? Lots of different things. Um, but it's it's crazy where the music takes us. I mean, it really is. I've, I've, I've been fascinated with electronic music for so long. Uh, well, you're going to be uh, doing a lot of pinching over the next hour or two. Um, uh, and so let me hand over to Nick to uh, to sort of you know rewind, re- yeah, to yeah. rewind the clock. Uh, okay, cool. Um, so you said you've, you you agree you've had a, a fascinating life, and, and it is. It's amazing all the different stuff that you've done. What has excited you most? Um, would you say uh, in your career? Is it if you could kind of identify? It, it really can't go down to one thing. I think it's an amalgamation of lots of other things. Um, it's like the straw that brought the camels back, I guess. You don't, you know, there's many great moments mm. for, for for the music. I mean, getting a gold disc and presenting it at your nightclub, an underground nightclub, not you know, namely the Blue Note, mm. would have been a pretty. In this day and age, it wouldn't happen. You wouldn't have a, a, somebody presenting a a gold disc at a nightclub and turning the lights on and, and all all getting rowdy and celebrating that and no. chinking of, of champagne glasses or beer and whatever together. But we did that and and and. Um, I think that 
breaking it in America in that sense of underground music. I think there's a very big difference because I was always a big band. So like, you know, obviously you look after mm. Liam and Prodigy. Mm. I mean, worldwide stadium band. Mm. You look at, you know, Radiohead has been, a, you know, for me, a kind of indie rock, but almost electronic band. Mm. I think there's something has been taught within what they've done with looking at Electronica. I think there's a, a resonance with that vibration of what Radiohead have done. Mm-hmm. More so than any, any everything else is usually nostalgic. You know, I, lo- I like ALO. You know, I love, you know, I, I love, you know, Kraftwerk. I love all these different bands that have come up doing certain things. But I think Radiohead kind of flipped it to another way where it was quite different. But um, there's so many... So many different moments. It's well, going to thinking. South America and, yeah. and seeing young people in Mexico dance drum bass music in Japan. And yeah. I, think, I think, to be honest, I think drum and bass music as a genre probably did to the art world what graffiti's impact was. At its very centre, it's never really understood, even to this day still. Mm. But as soon as it's kind of watered down a little bit, they kind of get it. As soon as it's on a T-shirt at Barney's, mm. we understand it. Or it's, it's bubbleified, it's bubble letters. People kind of understand it. They still can't really read Intrinsic Wild Style, but you don't expect them to because if you could decipher Intrinsic Wild Style, it would make it as, as important... And that kind of what I call the hieroglyphic or the pharaoh's wording, if you like, is is what makes the genre so defining. It's strange that, you know, people can still paint in, in, in Walsall or, or graph font and a language that is known by a few but understood in terms of what we, how we read it, in terms of what style looks like. Um and yet so many can't understand it. So mm. it's like a hidden camera. It's the hidden court. It's the hidden... It's that hidden layer of, of street culture that still is... Can't be read in that sense. You know, most people go, oh, that looks beautiful. That train's full of life and graffiti. It's fantastic. <laughs> but they don't, can't read the letters. Mm. The, you know, the way it's weaving amongst itself. But, but there's, there's a, there is a, a method to madness. And there is actually a... Uh, uh, within that chaos, as much as it may seem chaotic and full of just loads of colours thrown together, there is a set of rules. All right. So, <laughs> so tell us about your set of rules that you developed then, like, and how. Let's take us back to the take us back to the start. And, and... I don't know. I I, I think that, I think there are none. But in terms of what there's there's a set of rules within the parameters. You know, drum and bass music has got to sound right. It has to be. I think it has to come from the right place. There's a difference between, for example, rudimental finding their father's record collection and 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 having their impression on what drum and bass is. And we know it's not from the source because you can hear it's not from the source. But it's 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 not. It doesn't lack the same energy because they're they're emulating that. You know what I mean? The same way we emulated hip hop, I guess, from New York in the when it first came out. Mm. And there was there's a time when it was kind of cringeworthy in the beginning when people were imitating America. But then London Posse came and it was kind of pretty cool. It had a a different twist to it, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so there's, that's a different. There's a different aspect to that. So you got to, you have to be able to take yourself far away and realise that you couldn't build a wall around New York, and the genres were going to, ex, you know, be exported and be nomadic. And I think, in the same way that the Parisians and the precincts took to hip hop, they took it hip hop better than we did because they made it in their own dialect for a start. You had people like Solo doing their own dialect. But for me, as a genre that was on the back of, you know, European rave culture. An Americanism and breakbeat culture that's coming coming out of the Bronx and Brooklyn and Queens, then that was going to be something different. There was going to be a hybrid happen there. Mm. And I think, you know, I did an Arcadia set at Glastonbury, and it's been the most received set by a general consensus of people. Yeah. Because it's kind of pre-internet, number one. And number two, a certain set of trees 
like dub conspiracy. And, you know, there's these tunes that were like, you know, total science, early stuff that never really, that you just, you wouldn't have associated with commerciality, but there's such, there's such an integral part to what we were built on. You had Homeboy Hippie and a Funky Dread coming out of Archway. Yeah. You had Demon Boy's Debt, which is kind of like hip hop, but a hybrid of breakbeat culture. And and then you had Babylon, you had Elter Skelter, you had... Meet Me Manifesto. Of mate, course, man, yeah. Meet Me Manifesto were a huge influence. Yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, Prodigy. Yeah. You know, and, and I think... I think for me, I think my ignorance was being very dark and it was that kind of the urban black side of what was happening in the UK at the time. You know, I was listening to things like, things like Kickman Records, Warrington the Snowman, Ibiza Records. Even when Project already broke, there was yeah. always all these other tunes that were kind of going, you know, like, we're rave, but we ain't rave, kind of thing. Because yeah. it was a flip side to that. And I think when Charlie Says comes out, we were we were going the other way again. It's, it's what British culture does in a sense. It always does that. Because you had Nookie coming out with some serious stuff. Give a little love and those kind of tunes. But yeah. then you had NHS, you know, Doc Scott, yeah. Absolute Two Records. Yeah. They're a darker type of record. Um, and But then you think about the Prodigy's contribution to that. We mm. wouldn't have been here without that. Mm. As much as we were throwing stones from the glass house, <laughs> uh, we hadn't quite realised that it comes from a very big greenhouse. Yeah. Um, and even I was a victim of that. But I think I, I came on the back of going to New York, going to Miami to find my dad, coming back to Rage, going to a nightclub every week in Villiers' yeah. place, and then you know standing in a queue for eight weeks and not getting into the club because guy didn't like the look of me to then finally being accepted by Paul Churchill giving me the nod and going in there with chemistry and walking in there with a long you know a big kind of gangster's goose, goose down on sweating my bollocks off can I say bollocks with all these kids on a podium <laughs> dancing around like lunatics that have been out of the loony ass with no tops on and then halfway through this set of a silhouetted DJ everyone turned like lemmings because it was laser and this laser came on I'm like what is this ritual they do it was a real moment of like, what the? F where have I been? What well, the yeah. fuck? Well, where have I been? Well, well, well that, that's the perfect, uh, perfect sentence, really. To, to now, to just rewind it. It's, it's great getting all of this vivid colour from your life after you've made it. But it, what it would, it would be a nice place to start musically to just go rewind right back to where you started when you were a kid and you first like absorbed started to absorb music i guess through your dad or yeah i think i think for me the most important record was at that time in terms of consciousness would have been um super tramp the logical song because i was administered into a children's home they finished the paperwork i'd been pulled out of a breakdown in a foster you know in a, in a foster home where i just it, it was it just broken down. It was it was it was just the beatings. It was getting crazy. I was smashing things. I was burning a lot of stuff. You know, I was borderline. Uh, you know, borderline um, setting fire to everything I could. So you were a problem kid. I was a, yeah, I was a big problem kid. I mean, I, I, I and, and a true fire starter. Dare I say? So. Well, yeah, we went there. Well, I think when when Keith started singing that, my eyes started to twitch a little bit yeah. when, when that record came out. Yeah. But I remember being in a in, in a they, they they kind of shut the door and had locked a room. It was like a playroom mm. um, to wait to finish the paperwork, and I only we had like, you know, like three steps going down, like a tiered room. And in the bottom of that room was a gramophone, and uh, it was a very Proustian moment because I opened the gramophone. I can smell, I can smell the kind of veneer wood 
alongside this slightly clunky mechanical machine called an arm. You'd pull it down, it would lift up and it would go across into the record. On the, the seven-inch record was on there with this cream label mm. was in fact Supertramp, um, the logical song. And, 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 it, and it came across and it went down onto the record and it just played. And I think at that moment, I just, I know what's, it just hit me, this record. Because it felt like this person was talking to me. It wasn't generic at all. And, and it, it stopped and it, and it came up again and I pulled it down again and it did the same thing and played the record again. I think it was three times I played it, or four times. And then they, the social worker came in along with the warden and uh, someone else and they said, well, that's it. And the social, social worker had to go. And I thought, well, I'm supposed to be leaving, but I wasn't. I was there to stay. So, of course, I just had a bit of a melt, you know, just started screaming and shouting. And it's just pulling me from a gramophone. There's two people trying to hold me. And I'm just, the social worker's leaving and they've got to leave and it's all emotional. And I'm just screaming and... Um, they just pulling me away from his gramophone, really, kicking and screaming, and it was that song. That was a very prophetic record, actually. That because it, it, do you remember that he said, uh, "Watch what you say, or they'll be calling you a radical, a yeah, liberal, a, liberal, a yeah. criminal, a criminal." Yeah, and it was uh, it, I, I, somebody graffitied it actually, in, in I think in Herne Hill or Brixton, like just a few months ago, and it around the, around the election, and it yeah. just it really made sense now. You know, just that that well, just the words, that yeah, the words song. for that song are quite prolific for me, I, and I was, and, it, and, and you know, and. Um, and it's, 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 I think it is, I think it's quite strange and beautiful in a lot of ways that the synthetic generation, I call us, you know, I think Liam definitely, you know, the brain tree and all that, what they did there. And I never went to that neck of the woods, mm. but they were the kind of Southern ravers, if you like. And we were mm -hmm. the Shelleys and Stoke and Birmingham and mm. Coventry and yeah. the Eclipse. And, you know, I think there was a the time when those kind of ravers came together, but I, th yeah. I do think it was a little bit like, there were two halves of the music going on and we're gonna, they were doomed to collide. And I think rave culture in the fields made us travel up and down the country to do that. Mm. You know, Donington, Mickey Linus's wedding. I was outside listening to Terminator when that was. We'll get to that story. We were. Right? I, I was <laughs> there. I was there. Uh, but but let, should we hear some music from the beginning? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Let's have this this amazing track. It's such a it's such a lovely excuse to play. It's such a surprise to be playing it on yeah. uh, on on your show, as it were. Trailblazers, Goldie. I mean, it's no, it's no, it's no, it's no secret. I mean, I've spent my, you know, my entire life from the age of three to eighteen in the institutions. So I spent various foster parents. So, so your mum couldn't cope and she gave just, you yeah, away. She couldn't cope. She gave me away. Um, I had a brother that was two years younger than me, and I, I was always confused in my teens about all of this. Why? Why me? You so know? she kept your brother. Yeah, but but just couldn't cope with two. So she, with two. so so. She, she, but uh, I always spoke to my mother about it. And she said. I always felt that you would survive because you were stronger. It was like, it was a, it was one of the weirdest explanations, but I understand that now in a lot of ways. Yeah, because she must have felt it as a mother. I mean, don't get me wrong; it was no easy task for her. She had two black guys that, that she was seeing at the time that were beating her a lot. She was getting beaten. My mother was. 
I think the fact you know we're drinking heavily and 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 the the, the lovers were, were there was some vicious stuff some vicious stuff that happened with my mother. Yeah, there was some stabbing. She was cut. It was it'll be very violent. It was a very violent household. You know, you have to understand. My mother came from the Gorbals in Glasgow, and she was her father was an alcoholic. Yeah, you know, threw her out of the family for seeing a black man. She sang in a pub in Leeds. That's how she met my father. So, you know, I don't want to go through the whole story. So of it she all, was a black sheep. She was a maverick in her She was a maverick family. in her own family. So you can see. see the apple never falls far from the tree. Yeah, basically. And, and to be honest, I have complete empathy for my mother because, you know, I, I went through a lot of stuff. And, you know, I, 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 think, I think the way that I can kind of not, not by default get out of this is that without droning to an audience uh, that want to, you know, that obviously I'm mean, I talking about the timeline of music, is that... I did an experiment with a guy from Guy's Hospital about um, the limbic system. It's called Body of Songs. I mean, I am fascinated by the limbic system. One, I never knew what it was. I was just drawn to it. To it. But the limbic system is, is the old rat brain. And inside the old 50,000-year-old rat brain, inside of that, the limbic system is this hundredth of millionth of, 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 a, of a pinhead where if you show violence... Guns, knives, blood, you know, tsunami, you know, despair, disaster. It illuminates in lilac and purple. And if you show Matisse, paintings, beautiful, classical, great music, water, it lights up in the same colour, just mm. adjacent. Mm-hmm. So it kind of explains, we've only in the last 20 years discovered this. We, 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 through trauma, it, it lights up. And through therapy of music, it lights up. Just adjacent. It's like flight or flight. It's why rappers are so successful. Mm. The, 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 the survival rate of ravers and people that have, have been out of hardship, they write songs about hardship. We, we lament for, 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 for... We have this thing where we have this Pandora's box that we, we have to do this. We have urges to make this music reflective of our, of our, of our very you know, beginnings. And it, it all comes out subconsciously, I think. And then it comes out consciously, whether you're a punk going through trauma or whatever else. So I was very fascinated with that as a whole. So music, getting to the point, is my timeline. It's my time machine. Because I associate the music getting me over the trauma. So anything in my life, all these all these records were very, they're very, they're very th- th- therapeutic for me. Mm. And so what was getting you through the... What must have been a terrible trauma of being of, of, of feelings of abandonment because your well, brother about, was with your yeah, mum and yeah, 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 there's two issues in my life, and it's always been one being misunderstood, and two abandonment. <clears throat> Note to self: graffiti and drum and bass music. <laughs> who would have guessed? I, yeah. I, I've just you know I've done the same thing. I've been attracted to the same thing. I was always going to have those same challenges, mm. just in other guises. You know, drum and bass music being so misunderstood. Um, like myself and graffiti as the art form being completely misunderstood so I've attracted that that's the law of averages that's what you do um, and I think in my teens you know records that really stood out for me which I want to play now is I remember it was almost as if at the end of this show we have you know the humanity when I heard Mr. Blue Sky it was like wow the world is a rainbow <laughs> and it's fantastic and it's, 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 it's going to be beautiful and Mr. Blue Sky he knows the bad guy's coming it's Mr. Blue Sky be positive but then you be 40 king it's like the underside of this country it's really starting to show its colours and I think that really that really that really resonated with me because you know I just started smoking weed and it was like this dub aspect of 
music I hadn't really heard. I'd heard the specials and I'd heard, you know, you know, all this other stuff going on. But for me, you before that record just showed me something else that was really beautiful. And they were local to you as well. They, local were, they were homeboys. Me, yeah, they were thing. homeboys in that sense, in local. Um, but I was getting, I because I, I'd got a grasp of Reggie 3 and I was still Paulson and Marley, of course. But again, I've always gone for the hybrid. Mm. When I think about it, I'm mm. like that kind of eco car thing. You know, you, you go for the hybrid. <laughs> Christopher Nemeth, with, you know, with a baseball cap. Do you know I mean? A British designer with an Americanism, you know, goose yeah. down aspect to it. Or, you know, you know, rave culture has been, you know, European techno and breakbeat from America. Yeah. It's the hybrid, I think, in everything that I kind of find. And here it is, UB40, King. Trailblazers. What a dream of a promised land. People are only What a lovely record. And um, so, Goldie, where were you? When this record was happening, uh, like, so where were you and, and who were you with? Because you've always been such a good connector of people. <laughs> yeah. And so, I was, who were the people I was, that were in your I was. Life I, well, I, I, would, I just started secondary school and it was the first year of secondary school and it was Frank F. Harrison near Beachdale, the biggest national front gaff BMP in, like, that's known for its... It's racism, this place. It was known for years. It was is always, this like around Walsall? This is in the West. This is in the West. It's between Willingall and Warsaw. Right. It's a place called Beachdale. And yeah. it was really, uh, it was like, you know, you, I wouldn't walk through there alone. There's no <laughs> yeah. way. My, my, and in my class was a black guy called Eric Smith who used to live there. And um, when, it's it's really strange. When you first go to a sec- secondary school, who's going to be the cock in a class? Um, and the cocker class means he's going to be the top. He's going to be the top dog. Yeah. Gonna, you know, we've all got to try. You got to try and push your yeah. push your luck. <laughs> yeah. And uh, there was this. There was Eric, who was quite a big black guy, and it's me. And there's a few others. I wasn't really. I was just the joker of the class. I was the one that made everyone laugh. You know what I mean? But um, there was this one kid called Whitehead. He had like really light hair, and he was kind. I kind of gravitated to. I was sitting kind of. He sat behind me, Whitehead. We ended up sitting together in the end. But I used to hang out with Wise because I felt comfortable with him. I liked the way he was. And some people started trying him really early on in the first like week. And he used to go really, really bright red. And he'd just lose his shit. Like, he wouldn't take no shit. And I remember just, just hammering some geese. And some guy said something. And he just got up and just went, you want it now? And he walked home and just hammered him out. And uh, Whitehead, I was like, I was really impressed. Because he wasn't that big. But he was handy. There's a guy called Paul Endy. He's called him Hopalong Handy. He's have like one leg short than the other. You can't, it's just really, <laughs> can't really say that now, can you? But he was Hopalong Handy. He always just rub his knuckles together. Old Handy. <laughs> and he used to walk like that. Uh, and, and we, this kid, Whitehead, says, you want to come with me home for my lunch? So we go to Warsaw on the bus, to, which is just down the road on the bus. It costs two pence flat fare or something mad. And I went to his mom's house and he just walked in. It was just weird because his mom used to see a black guy. Yeah. And Whitehead was kind of more black than, than black guys then for me. He was like this white kid that could speak Patois like really yeah. well. I'm like, what the? Do you know what I mean? And he'd give him my first spliff in the lunch break. And I listened to that record. <laughs> and lost, lost it completely. I remember putting yeah. my hands on his sofa. 
And I, I just, it was just Alice in Wonderland. I just fell like a Lewis Carroll story through his sofa. <laughs> did, you, did, you and just, did you ever make it back to school after oh, that we, I made it back to school. I was pretty stoned. I don't remember the rest of the day. But it was a, it was a record that, again, symbolised... Um, I was beginning to buy a lot of records, you know, via Ruby Reds mm. in Wolverhampton. Um, and um, I was in this children's home. I used to go every Saturday morning. I used to go skating at Whispering Wheels. So I'd buy seven inches at Ruby Reds. Uh, and Mick, who, who worked there, was was he played music at the skating rink and played like Papa's got a brand new pig bag. You know, he played all this other stuff, you know, Steel Pulse, um, you know, UB40. And I get a feel of the music, really. Because it, it was only then I started finding, I mean, when I heard September for the first time, Earth, Wind and Fire, I heard it at a skating rink. Mm. Wow. You know, um, and of course, previously to that, my only experience of soul music was my... Uh, on, a, on, a, on a fostering before I'd gone to, to, to this school and I was still in junior school in the next town with my kind of foster brother called Stephen who was a black guy who used to go skating which is how I first found out about his skating and he was into Northern Soul so Dolby Gray out on the floor I'd hear those tunes coming out of his, out of his room so my experience of that was quite, quite crazy I've, I've got a very, very, very eclectic palette um, There's hardly any black skaters in those days. You were like you were trailblazing. Well, even no, then, you but two. To, be, to be honest, we were in the Midlands, and it was there was a guy called Cockney. He was a, a guy from from London who was on, on his on his toes. He was a great skater. Couldn't he? Couldn't beat him. And there was Kenny and me, and we all were part of this roller hockey team on a Saturday. We used to go around the country playing. I know many people know that I was I was in the B team for England. We were like pretty warm. Good no, God! And, and I was goal for the goalkeeper. I was a great keeper. Okay. I used to get these, you know, these balls shot at me at sixty miles an hour every week <laughs> in that scary mask. Uh, but he used to be, he used to, because I used to skate every day. I was on skates. You couldn't get me. When the police caught me when I ran away from from the home, when I was approaching eighteen, because I was skating every day. Then I was at the skating rink. You couldn't find me anywhere else. Hmm. Um, when I ran away, they um, they caught me at the whispering world. But they had to catch me first. So all these CID piled into the skating rink and they're all like, you know, they're all spreading <laughs> out around with their like, rain jackets on and I'm dodging all of them skate. And all my mates are trying to block them from getting me. And they finally get me and carry me out and put me into a, a, to a marked police car and take me to the police station. And I signed all of my fingerprints with my skates still on. Mm. There you go. Wow. But that place was great because it, it kind of grew me into, into that whole thing. But that's when it really started hitting me because the culture was kind of accelerating then. And for me, you know, what, what got me was was seeing, you know, that era for me was 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 before my breakdancing era. But of course, then you'd get like a, 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 a swimming bath that was transformed in the winter as a place you'd go and have a dance, mm. right, usually. So I remember going to William Hall Baths, which was between Warsaw and Wolverhampton, where I'd go skating on the bus. And, and in the interim, in the holidays, when it was closed, and it was uh, would have this dance. I'll never forget it when this kind of explosion happened of kind of electronic, you know, Electro was coming out in a way, and all these records were coming out. But a record that really stood out for me was Peaches, Don't Make Me Wait. And I, I can single-handedly say that the way that the echoes were, the claps in that track, is why I always echoed stuff within D&B, or have good reverb and a good mm. echo. What is that thing where the record kind of dissolves it? You know what I mean with the voice. Yeah, take um, delay, I guess. So yeah, it's take that. So here it is. It's uh, when I when I'd heard, you know, this this don't make me wait. Peaches was I don't know which ones I have first really. I think because I do think that even though that came 
I, again, my timeline is destroyed. I only know the music. That's I couldn't right. tell you what year that came out. Mm. But I know within a period of time that those two records, it's just begun Jimmy Castor. I was like, what is this record? I think we'll start with Jimmy Castor because, you know, you had this... I didn't know I didn't know where I fitted in. I just know I loved all this music. But I think as soon as hip-hop culture came, that culture came and see, seeing it, I seen the Gladys Knight video with the guy spinning on his head. What? The guy spinning on his head? <laughs> and, and graffiti was like, there's bubble letters, letters that are blown up and placed on a train. I mean, it freaked me out. Yeah. Um, but seeing, I think it was Crazy Legs on a Breakdance video. Yeah. It was Crazy Legs, wasn't it? Mm. And obviously Malcolm McLaren. Yeah. Buffalo Girls. Yeah. It was like, it was mind-blowing. Mm. Um, so let's Jimmy Castor. Got to hear this. It's just begun. Trailblazers. Well, that record that you just picked, that was a, that was a real pivotal record because that, that's one of those ones where I think probably 99 out of 100 people will know it, like the back of the hand, but, but um, well, only one of them will know actually what it's called. Well, here's, here's the truth in the matter. What you have to understand about that, it was taking breaks and, and looping them, you know, because that was a B-boy anthem. Yeah. But it's, it's it was the it was the, the original DJ doing that it's from the band from Jimmy Castor and taking the loop, and really we have a lot to thank for for records of that ilk, because it was about Charlie Chase and those guys, you know, looping records from yeah. one deck to the other. That was the sampler. That really, you know, that culture made us really. Yeah, and electronic music. Cool it really Herc. got people to yeah. Cool Herc, Charlie Chase, to be able to do that and loop records as the very the very binary sampler. Really, yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah. from that moment, you could you could you could stop time. With yeah, the yeah, exactly. Cutting it was that was it. It was cutting between two breaks because they noticed that all these guys were going mad during the break. So they just yeah. have two records and doubled the break and then tripled it and quadrupled it. Yeah, and, and that's where it is. And I think it's there's important. There's a lot of records of that ilk that, that did that that made it very. You know, then the nine hundred Akai came out. You know, and of course. You know, onto the S1000. You know, but before that, of course, you had you know the the MP3 and the drum machine. You had all these other things. I mean, the 808 was an interesting thing because, you know, I spoke to Arthur Baker about this, and I found one of the most fascinating stories about the 808 to this day is that when when Planet Rock was being made, and they went to the you know the the halftime vocal, um, you know, the song I'm signing for, sorry, with um, yeah. You know, yeah. they're so up, signing yeah, for but they're big, powwow. Yeah. You know, the, the way that that halftime thing happened was because they didn't, they, they couldn't rap to it in normal time. They couldn't get the beat because mm. it was a drum machine. And they found it very difficult. So they went away and had, 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 had a break and came back. But what they were saying is when, they, when Arthur Baker advertised for that in the New York Times, they saw a column and it said, drum machine man for hire. And it was $25 an hour. Mm-hmm. And I hired the guy in to do that. And he said, he got, what, show us what you can do. And he did that beat. Yeah. And then he went away. And they, never, they could never find him ever again. 
and responsible for one of the biggest records ever that came out of America in terms of right. what it did to the impact of electronic music yeah. from a hip-hop point of view. Have, have you seen the movie, actually, the documentary? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really good. Have you seen it, Eddie? Mm, uh, oh, it's, right. it's amazing. Arthur, the, the 808. The 808, the story of the 808. Yes, I need to uh, see that. Yeah, yeah. But it's fascinating for us because, you know... It's a Japanese dude, hasn't it? Yeah. From Roland, yeah. Yeah. And That's quite fascinating, of artists. how you find that. But I think Just Begun was was obviously very a very big tune because it kind of... It was almost like they sounded really kind of like laid back then, but it was kind of aggy for us then having this this record like that. It was great having this this kind of outrageous record. So at this point in your life, you you were going to clubs and dancing. We were you we were imitating music. No, we were imitating American. You know the guys from the Bronx. We wanted to be like them. Yeah, we wanted to spin on our backs and learn to backspin. Yeah, and and do windmills and. And have a crew, and you know, and get the same tracksuit together. And it was all about the lino. Yes, exactly. Going to the park, you know, and we inherited that. And a lot of that stuff really was on breakfast TV in the morning. You know, you had Malcolm McLaren on breakfast TV with you know the Buffalo Girl, which blew. Which I mean, Malcolm McLaren just—he knew that was going to happen. He had this whole thing going on, mm. and um, and I think it was, you know, you had this courtship from Blondie and 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 these these uptown kids into the Bronx. They lament, you know, to Five Five Three. They they lamented to all those people. And I think the same thing's happening now in a sense of where you've got people, you know, getting into grime and, you know, we've all been courted. Every culture's been courted. We were courted, you know, John Bass was courted. Yeah. You know, Prodigy were courted, mm. but, you know, going out to these great gigs. And and uh, I find it fascinating, but I think, I think uh, at that point, you had that record, which was really right up there in New York. But then you had Don't Make Me Wait Peaches, which was kind of like, it's a different kind of dance record. It, you know, yeah. I think they came out of Chicago. So it was a kind of a little... Well, I think, I'm, I'm not sure. I think Peaches came out of Chicago. I'm not sure. Mm. But it was a different kind of dance music. You know, it's kind of taking it away from, you know, the hip-hop influence. But now it was this kind of like almost housey type electronica. Yeah. Mm. I mean, the, the same could be said for Serious Intention. Serious Intention, mm. which yeah. I think is another, another massive record for me. You Don't Know, that one. Yeah. yeah. Well, again, You Don't Know was sampled in Castaway too. Ah, okay. So Jimmy Caster and You Don't Know, because what I did was I looked at the You Don't Know and made the bit and made the backing vocals, made that made that sample the backing vocals and did a chorus for for it. I just created a new chorus. Yeah. But you don't know, you don't know me. Yeah. You don't know. Serious intention again. Yeah. Another great record. That was um, my first uh, kind of record industry job, working for Easy Street, actually, the, the wow. American label that put out the Serious Intention record wow. yeah, when I was at university. It's like it's, I mean, that really is, that was a record that, was, you know, yeah. the echoes, and that's what made me, it's, yeah, <laughs> yeah all of that. that made me, really. Sort of Paradise Garage records, yeah, weren't it was very much Paradise Garage records. Beach and it, Boys and... And it made and that, me. Yeah. So that's in the same... Pocket. In vain, yeah. I love those records. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I never put it on the list clearly because I thought I'm going to run out of tunes here, but it, ah. was, it was a tight fit because I think Don't Make Me Wait, I heard first, and then I think Serious Intention came out after. Could be. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. And that's why. And then Serious Intention just blew my mind completely. Should we listen to the... Don't, Don't Make, Make Me Wait, Peaches, yeah, yeah. Let's do that. Trailblazers. So don't make me wait. 
culturally so interesting. There is that you, you, I can hear so many records that have come out of that, and and it's a it's mm. a real it's a really um, it's a really important sound that was as far reaching as even somebody like the Scissor Sisters kind of came out of that of of that sound. Well, there was the, the, uh, the there, there were the mixes naughty. of that were even deeper as well. It was kind yeah. of like one of the lighter mixes, but I think it was a. It was. It was. It, we were getting influenced by a lot of American music. You know, we had. You know. You know. You know. Um, all the Jack, Jack the Groove kind of stuff was coming out. Yeah, and it was really influencing us a lot. But you were. But 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 for, at that point in your life, it was as you say. It was all about the lino, and you know, you were dancing and you were consuming. And as a as as somebody who ended up as uh, as a musician and a producer, at this point in your life, you were still a consumer. So, what was the point? How did you segue from being a consumer to a creator in terms of music? What was the thing that 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 really lit a rocket up your ass at that point? Oh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, a really good E, basically. Um, I'd gone to I'd gone to America and pursued my dreams and done the thing and graffiti and paint train and whatever and you know I'd done that stuff and it was great and I went to find my dad and I came back here and. And uh, I didn't go back to Wolverhampton. I just stayed with Gus Coral, who's like my dad, really, in Camden, and at Dorney Tower, which is just had, just had to evacuate and go and be rehoused somewhere while I take away the cladding. Uh, and I used to look over London on the 18th floor, and of course, I was just going out and going through Camden, and these, these Zoom records was there, just yeah. opened up, yeah. and Rage was firing. And then on a Saturday night, I was flipping with Nelly and going to the to the, to the Wag. On a Saturday night, we got to the Wag. Um, and Nelly was just moved from Delaney with DJ Milo, and he just moved out of Milo's place and got his own place. Soul to Soul was breaking left, right, and centre. And who was at the Wag? Like Dave Durrell and people like yeah, that. Yeah, Dave Durrell was at the Wag with Dom T, and it was it was just mental. And then Nelly Cherry would be there. Yeah, Cameron, you know, Fat Boy, Fat Tony was there basically every, mm. every week. So it's Fat Tony and Dom mainly, and and uh, you know you'd have a D Light, you'd have that record playing. It was really trendy. Yeah, and I got a bass clef in Earl's Court. And they had with Judy Blame and all that mad, you know, it was just mad. And then from the wag down the road, you'd have the brain, which was, yeah, you're going to get out of control. If you just not had enough, go with the brain. <laughs> yeah. And you see, again, the flip side of London nightlife. Yeah. And then we'd end up to Spectrum, you know, Spectrum had a night. And Billy used to work the door at Heaven with Spectrum. So that's my first introduction to Heaven was really early with Nelly going to Spectrum. That really blew my mind. Um, and um, and you know, go grazing road. And this wasn't the spectrum from Nottingham. This no, is a, no. This is spectrum. The D, a D and an early. Like, no, this is spectrum this is as a rave. There, as a as a thing that happened hardcore, in London. Like, hardcore, yeah. yeah, rave and acid, basically acid house. Yeah. Um, but of course, with all the rave stuff, you know, because I went to America and come back. You know, when, when I left, we were football hooligans. When I come back, it was we're all dropping pills and hugging each other. <laughs> you know, because it was strawberry fields forever, and it was happy Mondays and. And all of a sudden, everyone was it loved up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was scratching my head, thinking, "What the fuck happened?" <laughs> you know, part of the Subway Army and you know the Sketchly Crew beating people up and taking each genies, and all of a sudden now they're like, "Do you want to lift down?" <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, which was kind of kind of funny. But again, rave culture did so much; it was an impact on the country because you know, I, I, I it was just this agony and ecstasy at the same time was happening, um, and the and the underside. For whatever reason, you know, I, I was going to rage heavily every week and and Groove Rider was playing music and he's playing European stuff and and this this hybrid of British stuff. And um I'd met Doc Scott via 
Kevin Stormers to, uh, to, to shop at Haringey with a guy called Chris who used to sell records at Music Power on Green Lanes. And we'd wait for Groove Rider to turn up because you can just about recognise him from the Thursday night silhouette. <laughs> turn up in a red Mercedes. He'd come through the back door. Everyone's like, Groove's here. He'd get a bag of records pulled out by Chris. Chris would try and, try and show off and mix them. Groove Rider would just kind of nod his head to say yes or no. <laughs> so you'd know what records were going to be played the next week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Kevin Storm would be like, and Chris would sort them out with the odd two that Groove Rider, the duplicates that Groove Rider had had. Get home and they'd spend all weekend mixing those records. Yeah. Um, and I, I got, I remember I got kind of friendly with Groove in the end, long story, we got friendly with Groove. And uh, I heard a tune, that, This Is Deranged by Doc Scott and Keith Sucklin, and it just, on a, on a mixtape, it just blew my mind. And I thought, whoever has made this record has got to be black, number one. Mm. And uh, lo and behold, he was white with blue eyes and a long ponytail. It was Doc Scott. <laughs> <laughs> so I met him at Arringate. He came to the shop and he'd come down and I met him and shook his hand and we exchanged contacts. And then he came down and uh, we'd met up and we, I took him to Rage and he'd, he'd given me um, these tunes that we'd, that we'd cut in the daytime at music, music House. It's this cutting place we used to go to in Archway. And we cut the record. Uh, and it was for Reinforce at the time. Mm. And uh, Groove Rider played it. And then he said, you can sign it to Reinforce. But before that, he'd put a version of this record out. Uh, and when I heard Here Comes the Drums, because he was Public Enemy, the sample. I'm positive he was. And it just blew my mind. Doc Scott. It was just dirty, man. It was just it was just one of those dirty tunes that was just rough as fuck it was just here comes the drums my first kind of thing with Doc Scott and here it is Trailblazers Goldie Want to hear more of the music? Don't forget, you can listen to the tracks in full by heading over to Deezer.com, where you'll also find special Trailblazers playlists. Deezer. Deezer. Originals. Trailblazers. You were listening to that and thinking, yeah, this is amazing. This is a game changer. This is filthy and it's and it's, and it's it's connecting yeah. with you in, on loads of levels. And did, was there a voice in your head at that point that went, I, I want to do this? Like, what At what point did you go... I want, this is what I want. This is, I, th- I think I can do this better than anyone. Or, well, or I think I was better than anyone, but I felt that uh, I was painting a lot of the time. I was doing a lot of graph, and I was, I was with Michiko Kashino in Iceland doing a project. And I got the, a friend. The fashion with, designer? Yeah, yeah. I was painting, and I, I, I did some mad parties there and with, with, with Michiko. And uh, I painted this nightclub. And I painted chemistry on the wall with a leopard and a tree and his jungle and this mad painting. It was crazy. And I got friendly with a guy called Aggie who um, collected, like, you know, B-boy memorabilia, Duffer St. George. He'd have this shop selling, you know, like World's End kind of thing. And uh, he had this interesting kid called B. And he said he's got a couple of demos and he played some really rough, I mean, they were really rough demos. And... Um, and I said, well, let me come back. And I came back to Iceland and, and just kind of, you know, went to the studio with him and started finishing these tunes and getting on a couple of originals. And we did, I did Rolling Like Scotty, 
which was an, in, me imitating Doc Scott. Like, how can I imitate this guy? Um, and did uh, Rolling Like Scotty, and there was a kind of uh, a Phil Collins sample tune on there. We cut the record and we distributed it with Moles Music. So let me get this straight. Like, so you made your first your first foray into D and B was in Iceland. In Iceland, sampling yeah. Phil Collins. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Good God. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, it was a guy called B. It's a really great idea. Um, and then when Rolling Scott and Scotty got rolled out, that was it. And then I was, we we sold out within. I got a phone call from Moles Music saying it sold out within three days. And then we did, and that was it. It was like okay. Um, was was that just like a white label? You it was oh, totally. Well, what right. happened with the white label? Because obviously white labels were the thing then. Mm. We um, Kevin Storm said, "Well, we have, we can't afford the, to get the artwork printed." So I'm, I'm being the artist. Yeah. I said, "What's it? What was it? I'll cut a potato backwards." Ajax project, and I cut it out of a potato, and I potato stamped, you potato printed it, the entire label. Amazing, nice. it's the Ajax like project, it. potato print. That was it. Oh, and nice. then of course from then it was like it started to. I started. I was going out to a story on a Saturday night and seeing Mannix and Nebula Two do a PA, and I said to the guy on stage, "I want. I can do this, and I do artwork. Get in touch with me. I want to. I want to redo your artwork." Mm. And I went up to Dollis Hill and met Reinforced Mark and Digo and Ian and Gus was running it and, and Digo. And I started, I redid the logo, which was the R with mm. the squiggles on the mm. side. That's my artwork. <laughs> and, um, and said, look, if you give me the money, I'll, I'll, I can go to a studio. And like, we've got a studio. I'm like, no, 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 no. If you give me the money, I'll go to a studio. Because at that point, on the, again, on the duality of my life, I was flipping, I was going to Utopia Studios and sitting in a room while they were doing Soul's mix, mix, Mixing Down Soul's Soul. Utopia in Hampstead? Yeah. Oh my God, I, record, I recorded my first yeah. demo. So there. Jazzy was recording there and Howie Bernstein was the engineer and Nelly was the producer. Yeah, that's right. That was Stevie Wonder's favourite yeah. studio. So I would go there and listen to them doing our sessions and then I'd go to Mayfair Studios, which is just over the hill. Yeah. And watch Howie in the dead of night mixing these tunes because Dawny Tower was right next door. Good God. Because because I was going out on a Saturday night with Nelly... I kind of got the introduction to those studios because yeah. Souls to Souls blowing up. So I always had a flip side. I always had a an over you know an oversight of my life. So I said to them, "Look, I'm, I know what studios like. I know what pre programming suite is." Yeah. And um, they gave me the money. I hired William Orbit Studio in Crouch End. Wow. And we were in the back room, and me and a guy called Linford, who was who was kind of raving at the time, I said, "Right, he had a big record collection." So I just piled into his record collection and we just went there and I went, right, sample that, 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 and that, and that. Sample, um, I think it was um, a Spike Lee film, a Spike Lee joint, I, I, I yeah. sampled that. Uh, SOS Band, I was just sampling all these great tunes and I just put them together. And they fi- I filled up two samplers and they said, you can't fill up two samplers. <laughs> and, I, and I filled up two S1000s and they said, it's not, it's not been done, you can't do that. Where are you going to put it all? Groundbreaking. <laughs> you can't do that. So day one, I filled up the samplers. Day two, I arranged it all. And day three, we mixed it. Good God. Because I could only afford the three days. I sold enough weed to pay for the studio. <laughs> and um, we did it and it came out as, as the Chris Biscuit EP. That's the real first thing I really did mm. that Chris stood out. Biscuit, that's right. And of course, Ryder played it um, and um, he had it on dub plate and, and, that, and that was really all she wrote. And of course, that leads us all the way up to um, really, which was the crowning glory, which was terminated because of course, I'd done Chris Biscuit, uh, I think it was Jim Screech and there's another track on there, I think. And then my second EP was Dark Rider and and Menace, 
which was just like hands down, that was it for me. I think. Well, I think. I think it was Menace, Jim Screech, and I can't remember which way around they were. It was definitely Jim Screech, and then and then it was the Dark Rider and Menace. I think it was. Mm. Um, and then I put I put them out with Reinforced. They got their money back very quickly, and um, and then all of a sudden the big guns came along. I think it was. Uh, John Trulove came along and said, yeah, yeah. I want to give you a two-track EP deal mm-hmm. in Arlington Street, the studio was there. And I did Terminator, Knowledge on the Other Side with Sinister and Chemistry as a four-tracker. I knew I knew I had to do it. Knowledge was for the North, Sinister was for the Dark Ones, mm. and uh, Terminator was just a fuck you up. <laughs> and, uh, and... and uh, and and then chemistry is because I was I was it was a love song for Kemi, hmm. and um, I'd, I'd use the get on the flip side because Howie and Nelly were working and Howie was doing Candy Mountain with Dan Charlemagne because he was fifty second. Oh wow! That, and that's how you met Diane. And that's how I met Dan because he was fifty second Street and John Knoll managed Howie and managed Diane. Right. And and who was engineering these for you at the time? This was now because at the, the when I got the money from Reinforce, it was Mark Rutherford and Johnny Goslin, hmm. and. Uh, Mark Rutherford was working for Peter Gabriel at a Real World, mm-hmm. and they had this little this little booth, this little room in in, uh, in Will Orbit Studio. in Will Orbit Studio because he was in there. And at that time, I'd see Will, but I wouldn't really know who he was. Yeah, you know, I yeah, was like yeah. this guy who locks himself in a room doing cargo. Yeah, um, and that was it really. And I just go because Kemi and Storm lived in Crouch End, mm. so it was just around the corner. Right, um, and that was it really. It was it was all she wrote. So, you know, I think the impact of Terminator. I remember. Cutting it and and uh, finishing it at six in the morning, um, EQing it on like twenty or forty E's, <laughs> standing on the desk with my hands on the ceiling with Johnny and 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 the guy Mark Rutherford, when he was doing it, in the end he, he'd ordered another bag of E's because I said look the arrangement we can't do any E's until you've arranged it because I know where it's going but when we're EQing it we're going to EQ it on E's. So when we, when we did... Is that what did, it's called, EQing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing was about Mark Rutherford, is that he lost his sight. He couldn't see after doing so many pills. His eyeballs were going... God. But he could hear well. Yeah. So he'd have to direct the mouse. He said, right, see when it said top creator, four bars, can you see? I'd have to direct his hand. Yeah. In, yeah, the, in the last days of that record. Oh yeah. And then I'd phone Groovevide when we finished it at four in the morning, six in the morning. And he was coming back from so I said, I think I've made something that's gonna change it all. I swear to you, ask him. And that was it. And he was that was he was game over at that point after that. Um you know, and that was it. So that, that was really Terminator. So here it is, Terminator. Trailblazers Goldie. So this this record must have changed a lot of a lot of people's lives, and no uh, least your own. Uh, so at this point, um, you, you were experiencing some real success. Yeah, well, I think I think people people said you have to hear these records. I couldn't get their head around it. How to move time and keep the same pitch, which is what you know. I'd always question engineers, and I've, and, and I think people have always been baffled by that because I think because of being a graffiti writer. 
I've always looked over the shoulder of a guy when creator was in black and white going vertically. So I've been watching the technology from the very beginning over the shoulder vicariously through someone else sure. in my own seancing method because I'm very articulate in the way that I want to, I would do stuff. And I would ch I challenge that from doing Jim Screech, that first EP, onto the second EP by talking to engineers that never came from electronic music. They were doing normal music. And I was kind of showing them how to program these are the breaks. You're going to loop these here, and we're mm. going to do that. And we're going to try something fancy, so we put an echo on it. You know, because I learned, because Reinforce and those guys in the underground were already doing what these guys were in advance. They were already programming breaks. Well, these guys' breaks were like just background noise, mm. as opposed to we've got to nail the vocal, because it's a normal song, if you like. Um, so Terminator was, the, was a big turning point, because it, it was all getting a little bit helium for me. You know, I always thought that Charlie says it was a little bit too helium for me. But I get it now. Because rave culture, we were, you know, reinforced was still really at the same kind of helium level when you think about helium level, when you think about head in the cloud. I just want to walk with my head in. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, I don't like it all the way up there. And I think yeah. I wanted to try and make a serious EP that was a little bit more produced, a bit more a bit more B-boy, a bit more a bit more a bit darker. Mm. Yeah. And of course, you know, Dark Rider was kind of the dark side stuff. And but I think even more so you know, the next record I'll play was more influenced. I mean, Fabian, Prophecy. Mm. I'd heard it in blues dances when I was a Rastafarian. You know, I think the influence of having Rastas in the family, my brother and, and the Konikis, I'd always hear Pablo Gad and Dub and Professor, you know, Dub Professor and all these, you know, mad scientists and, you know, Live from Fishguard from Jamaica, Yellow Man. I'd already had, I'd, I'd have all of these dancehall tapes anyway. You were a Rastafarian so, at one yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the whole family was, you know, and, I, and it was, it was, it was a bit mad. You know, twenty third of July, smoke as much weed on Selassie. I've been there, done it. <laughs> yeah, do you know what I mean? So for me, prophecy was was you know I was reading a lot of Revelation. The world's going to end. It's going to, you know what I mean? It was like on that probably that summer because the weed was that good. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and Selassie disappeared in his cell and turned into a lion and ascended. You know all the stories you hear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but. I think that was my. I think Sinister was my archetypal homage to that record. Sounds nothing like it, of course, but it was definitely the, where it came from. Fabian prophecy. Trailblazers. Prophecy. There was all so you were always, I guess, you gravitated towards a dark sound in 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 music. But then, it, but then that's, but then you took the the lovely kind of uplifting bits of rave and stuck them in there. So you were hybridizing again, weren't you? You were. It's yeah. always the, it's always about the the grey areas. For well, you, it's, isn't it's it? very, between the two things. It's it's it's, it's uh, well, it's also the two Miyagis. You know, I had two Miyagis in my life, and that was Mark and Digo because Digo would work. In the daytime, and he, he hated dog. He hated going out, but he liked funk and soul. And he was in the daytime. He'd engineer for me. Was I, that I'd, Mark Safris? No, no, no. Oh no, that was later. I'd already done. I'd already done with Mark. Mark, yeah. I'd, Mark I'd, I hadn't been here yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'd worked with Mark Rutherford, so I'd done the two EPs and paid for them. And then I was comfortable now with working with Reinforce in Dolly Sill Studios. And Suede used to rehearse downstairs, and I come upstairs. We got a little tiny attic. 
and Digo would program, and that's where we started doing the Dell Dai Go Go project. So it was Digo and Go Goldie, um, you know, on the back of Tech Nine, and it would work in the daytime, and then he'd go home, and Mark would come, so the tune would kind of take a turn. So all that sound of getting light and dark would happen through Mark and Digo, and of course that was where you know that kind of. I think Sinister was influenced by Fabian. But my musical side, you know, Metalheads was fast approaching because, you know, Rage was closing, you know, Saturday night was kind of the power of Saturday night was taking over because of Thursday was speed and that was changing. And it was Bookham's night. It was kind of, it, it, sometimes it got a little bit too light for me. Well, yeah, you had Danny Bookham doing his, what they what we used to call intelligent Intelligent, jungle. right, so yeah, I thought was then, loathed it. I loathed you, it. You, you doing the thing that I gravitated more towards Darker, from before it went, yeah, which was, yeah, I, cause you know, it, yeah. it, I, I lo- I've always loved the, the good, the dark guys, you know, that make the dark mm. music and then the dark clubs. And yeah, you know, the, 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 I think that's what happened with Blue Note when he was born, you know, I reached, I think Eddie Pillar got in touch or something with, we found his club on a Sunday night and I they were doing a jazz fusion in the afternoon and we'd, we'd roll on the back of the jazz guys coming out of the club and getting some, they just have to serve hot food upstairs. And Blue Note was born. Which which came first, the, the, the club thing or the label thing? The, well, the, the label came first because... Label first. Well, yeah, because what I failed to, to tell you is that when we when I was kind of, you know, kind of being the A&R for Reinforced Records, mm. I knew very early on that the dub plate was important because it came from sound systems, but the dub plate had no identity. Mm-hmm. So a guy called Darren came to me with this idea and he showed me this picture and it was a skull with his headphones. And he said, I want you to have this as your logo. And we kind of tweaked it a little bit. And it always looked like massive, my pit bull. Oh, yeah. We always, he said he based it on the dog <laughs> I used to have, looking at his head. And Groove Rider was on the radio because what we used to do is I'd go out on a Thursday night religiously. I'd always, and I said, why don't we supply the label pay for dub plates to be cut? Because I can't afford it. And we'd cut dub plates from underground software, primary source, Digo and me, you know, Ruffage crew, cut the dub plates and I'll give them to Groove Rider and Fabio and Randall. But I'd seen sound systems and seen a record on the deck with no ID. So I'm like, I'm not having that. The record needs to have identity. Yeah. So I'd cut a reinforced logo on one side mm-hmm. and a metal head on the other. Mm-hmm. And it was the dub plate label. Yeah. So if you saw the head, you knew it was going to be a reinforced dub plate. Right, right, right. And because it was, you know, Ryder was on the radio on Kiss or something, he was saying, I've got some metal to play tonight. <laughs> Meaning acetate, because a record's an acetate. You yeah, cut yeah. it, there's aluminium underneath it. Yeah. Yeah, I've got some heads. I've got some new heads. I've got some metal. So the name came from Groove Rider on a radio show. Oh, I didn't, uh, I didn't, I didn't even have the name. Yeah. So it became the dub plate label, and then the club came, and me and Scotty had already done... You know, I'd already a and would that four-track EP did for Reinforced via, you know, via, via Rage, me taking him to Rage. And then said, why don't we start this label and it's going to be Metalheads? And it was drums on one side and Riders Ghost on the other. And that was the birth of Metalheads. Mm. And that was... And, and that, that was, was all she wrote. And that, and that changed my life. You know, because at that point, I was at Radio 1. And then I, and I you know, 
heard you after London just signed you. They they, mm. uh, they played it to me, and then I can started coming every Sunday religiously on my motorbike, park it outside, eat some rice and peas, and then with a very full stomach nod on the dance yeah. floor to all of you it was guys, a great, yeah. to Radler, oh, to, to Peche, yeah. and to Digital, and, and um, uh, to Rupert Fotek, and yeah. all of you know. I, I met saw so a lot many of people get sick in that place. I mean, to be honest. <laughs> As culturally, I always thought you should have a plaque outside that place. But I think the guy that, funny enough, the guy that discovered Parkinson's um, has a plaque out there. It's the same building uh, as a place ever been double plaques. And really, there's a lot of people nodding in that place. So it's kind of uh, the irony, irony of Parkinson's <laughs> is within that building yeah. anyway, with his kids just dancing, you know, and yeah. vibrating. But when you think about it, man, I mean, Robbie Williams, Kate, but Bjork, Trevor Murray, Mel Gaynor. A lot of people, the Spice Girls, a lot of people pass through that club. Yeah. When you think about how responsible that club was for a lot of influencing a lot of people, if I had a, the most, the two things I get, that I get said when I'm walking in the general public on trains or anything is mm. I went to Blue Note. Yeah. Every week I went to Blue Note. I'm thinking the fucking place wasn't that big. How the fuck am I going to get all you lot in here? <laughs> so, so I think it frequented a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even the guy from New Jack City was in, you know, like one of the actors in there. Went to Blue Note. I had, you know, I mean, Bowie used to sit on the steps for a six-week period and roll, roll a cigarette going, Goldie, eh? this club's amazing, man. The energy inside that club's electric. You know, <laughs> yeah. he'd love it. Yeah, because that's right. He got into drum and bass, didn't well, he? He got into it. I mean, Earthling yeah. was influenced you, really. by the Blue Note. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and it was a phenomenal place. I mean, Trevor Murray, Bjork's drummer, got carried out of there a few weeks. You know, he got carried out of there um, because he was seething in there. It was pretty yeah. fucking hot. Yeah, it was. Um, you know, and and and, and I, I saw a mixture of great people. From uh, if I if I had a pound for every graphic designer that's now in a really really high end job, you know, that that's got into graphic design or video design, they usually kind of went to Blue Note. The creatives went to Blue Note. The future yeah. creatives went there because mm. it was it was it was about a hub of. I wasn't about the, the the hierarchy of, you know, it's intelligent or it's this or that. It's just Blue Note. You go there and a skater's standing next to a raster and a raster's standing next to a graphic designer, a graphic designer's standing next to a, a pop star who's on the map at that moment in time. A lot of, I mean, Stella McCartney went to that club. Mm. There's people that frequented there. Um, and I found that fascinating um, for me. While we're mentioning all these names, Rob Playford. Yeah. He must have come into your life around. Well, Rob, well, Rob came into my life because obviously Moving Shadow. And, um, you know, that was, a, that was a big part of my life. And Rob was a very big part of my life. He engineered Timeless. Yeah, well, so that's um, what I was getting to, you know. So mm. so at what point did the muse enter you and and you come up with, you know, how did Timeless come into being? Well, you know, I always, it came because, you know, uh, and, and I'd finished the two EPs. With, 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 uh, you know, I can't remember what the name of John and True Love Studios was, was called. But then people were sniffing around to sign, you know, I had, this, I had this idea of timeless. I had this idea of making a long record. And, uh, you know, Rob had Moving Shadow and he was working at Stevenish for me in his mum's house. And uh, he had this room, his programming suite there. And uh, I'd, I'd seen Too Bad Mice. I mean, I was a big fan of Too Bad Mice from hearing Warehouse Project, you know, yeah. Warehouse, Warehouse and Blame, obviously, was another big, big tune for me. And music takes you was huge, um, and I, got, I think I got asked to do a Mass Confusion remix or something, uh, and the one series I think it was, uh, or one in one, one in one series, and I'd met Rob and and uh, 
and we talked about these projects, wanting to do these projects. And the thing was, the major deal came about and I offered Timeless to Rob on Moving Shadow. Yeah. And he, ref- he didn't want it. Because it was 22 minutes long, 21 and a well, half minutes long. He, he couldn't see it. And I, I, yeah. I was really, I, I was jarred by that a little bit. Yeah, that's he, ironic. That's weird, isn't it? That well, he didn't get well, it in London. I, well, I Rob, Tong did. Well, yeah, I know. The thing was, I don't know what it was, but, but Rob never made his own music. He was a great engineer. You know, a guy said to me on Twitter, what, what, uh, 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 a guy did say to me ruthlessly on Twitter, two words, Rob Playford. I'm like, four <laughs> words, where is he now? Um, you know, I mean, I, you know, I, don't, I don't mind people doing that, but people who know me vicariously, that I'm infamous when it comes to engineering with a guy in a studio. You can, you can sit there all you fucking like, but I'm going to give you all these sounds and I'm going to see if you come up with the same thing that I come up with. I guarantee you won't. Yeah, we could put money on it if you want. How how much sort of A and R involvement was there in in making that album? You know, oh, was, what do you mean A and R? I suppose the re- your record, like when you signed to to Pete Tong at FFR. Oh, there was none. Oh my god, no, I would I was not having it from any of them. I, I wasn't having. You're going to make a record. This wasn't a pop record that people were going to say. Can you do two vocal tracks and a third one with a pianist? I'm going to make the record. I, I'd made Timeless with Rob first, and then I took Timeless as my A&R tool. Right. I took Timeless and played it to Rob Manley. I took it and played it to Pete. I took it and played it to Clive Black. Yep. And I'll see which one flinched. It was a fait accompli, in other words. It was all Yeah, yeah I, right. I, I want to see which one's going to flinch. And Rob Manley stopped it, I think, seven minutes in and said, got to go for lunch, got to have another meeting now. Right. Um, Clive Black was convinced he'd sign it, but on one album deal, wasn't going to stick. Okay. Trenton, my manager, Trenton Harrison at the time said, mm. you're going to need two albums firm on it, so it ain't going to work. And the only reason why Pete signed it was one, I turned up at his office with a pit bull and walked <laughs> in his office and sat the dog down next to him. <laughs> oh no, he was actually on the chair next what? to me. He didn't sign it because it was great. No. <laughs> no, 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 I reckon he was but scared was the of the dog. Bull, it was the pit bull that sealed the, the, the two album scared uh, of the dog. aspect of it. He was scared of the dog a little bit, but he yeah. actually massively had this thing. It was a black pit bull, which the label was based on. Massive used to have this thing. He was so well-trained. I could actually make him shit on a 10-pence piece. <laughs> I seriously, I could train the dogs to shit on a 10-pence piece. I swear to God. Because oh we, we used to have a little enclosure at the bottom of Dorney Tower. If you have a dog in a flat, you've got to train him well. So I trained him. I could, I could be over there, over there. I would, nope, nope, nope. Over there, I, would, I could get him to shit on a 10-pence piece. <laughs> well, look, can we, can we play, can we play <laughs> in a city life now yes, and then please. come back and talk some more about this? <laughs> Trailblazers. Inner City Life, that's such an important record for so many people. And I I just wanted to, I I wanted to just remember with you the, 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 um, the, uh, what's the word? Like the, when I was at the Radio 1 playlist meeting, that, that legendary meeting and, and the talk about something dividing a room. You know, when I came in and I had to make a really, really the most passionate speech I've ever 
really made in my life to get that record on that playlist and I had an ally in Christine Bohr from the evening session and Jeff Smith who was the head of music but then you know Chris who was Simon Mayo's producer was like no way this is no way going to go on the playlist and there was other people in the room who were just going there's no way that we can play this record it's too tough it's too hard but eventually you know like well with the allies in that room we got Mm. it onto that C list and it Mm. became you know, it crossed over onto daytime radio, which was, mm. and I was there, I was part of it, I was witnessing that. And it was, I mean, for me, it was an incredible feeling. For you, it must have been well, I don't know. I don't know. It amazing. Was, it was weird because you listen to it now and it's a pop record. It's a popular record. It became, you know, it's like a, I think the difference between a pop record and a popular record is it retains its integrity, but it still can be, you know, taken on board. And it was so different at that point. But the, the strangest thing about it was it was Timeless was made first. It was extracted yes. from Timeless yeah, as yeah. opposed to the other way around. Yeah. But it still was such an underground record. And the fact that mm. Simon Mayo, for example, refused to play it, point <laughs> yeah. blank, refused to play it even though it was on wow. the playlist at the yeah. time. It was, a, it was an underground record that had gone overground. Yeah, yeah, and that hadn't happened with that kind of stuff, really. I think Progeny were the only people that had really done that, to be honest. I think they really had a... A following of people, and you know, from rave culture that really trans transferred and and, and was 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 heard by by the many. I mean, they mm. they represented so many different people. Mm. Um, and I, I think from that kind of record that was influenced by soul music, I guess, in a sea life was that was was SOS band for me. It was all of those influences from a soul point of view, really, and and where I'd come from, my experience of inner city. Um, and I think I don't know. I, I think from there, it, it changed everything for me. And this was, in a sense, the f- cultural flip side of Britpop that was happening. And if you <laughs> yeah, took, totally. and if you took, um, you know, one of the pivotal Britpop bands in Radiohead, they stepped away from it so quickly, didn't they? And, and became just, you know, you know, well, what, we we don't want to play this game between Blur and. Well, away, weirdly, we, weirdly enough, and, and we, you were yeah. the same. You, well, so there's a there's a there's definitely a kind of a dotted line between you and Radiohead. In well, the weirdest thing is that I always thought that Thom York was a god anyway, a demigod. But we were at the same time, and I listened to those fairly uh, the early stuff they did, and you, and you could hear the, the makers of an unbelievable band. But weirdly enough, and the irony of that, because I was so underground and with these horse blinkers on, I never really paid it much attention. And then Brit things started really accelerating and, and, and whatever else. But even now, I'll play Creep at the end of a set in a festival because it's a, or an underground club, and pe- freaks people out. <laughs> But they're so drunk, they just sing along with it. Do you know what I mean? Because <laughs> you know he's such a... We, 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 you know what I mean? It, it was, I've done it a lot of times. Creep's been a thing that yeah. I've played. Really? Um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but I think, I think, I think that, that for me, Radiohead is the only band, indie band, with Johnny Greenway and the band, what they did, the sound of those pedals and what they did with it made a, a, an essential rock band. There was a turning point for, for, that, for bands for me. They've, they've, been, the, they've been the real... Court, I mean, you know, they've been the, the actual waypoints for a lot of bands where it sounded electronic, man. I mean, OK Computer, I mean, forget it. It's just Paranoid Android, all these tunes that were... And for me, Subterranean was one of the greatest records ever made, really, when you think about it. What a tune. Trailblazers, Goldie. The breath of the morning I keep forgetting The smell of the warm summer air I live in a town can't smell a thing You watch your feet For cracks in the pavement I 
Okay, Radiohead there. Um, and wow, obviously such a lot of great music that we've, we've listened to today and some incredible influences. Mm. Let me ask you to look forward at the moment. Like, what, what, does, what, does, what does the future hold for you? What do you want to do that you haven't done yet? Well, ironically, I mean, as much as I was this synthetic kind of underground kid and breakbeat's been my diet... The music side of it, the musicality, mm. arrangements never got away from me. Mm. And weirdly, I've gone in this massive circle and, I, and I'm back to that. You know, well, of course, you've made a new record and you... Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, Journeyman has been, you know, a 35 year of, of, of musical influence, really. And I think Pat Metheny has been single-handedly taught me about arrangement. And I think, you know, working with Pat on, on, on Are You Going With Me, the remake, mm. you know, on this album, um, and building an album based on an ensemble, which is the Heritage Orchestra. Yes. You know, we just did Henley Festival, which was insane on the weekend with, a, mm. you know, a 40-piece orchestra. And I've always wanted to have Electronica in that sense of, of why not? Why can't drum and bass be for adults? You know, we grew up on it. We all have 2.5 kids in there. We're not going to go out a Friday night. You know, I will because I'm DJ. Yeah. You know, and I'm playing cutting-edge stuff for Metalheads. Mm. It's not like I've just... You know, I'm like Tony Hadley on tour. No disrespect to Tony, but, you know, I'm performing at a, at a gig with these people. It was it was all, you know, old music. And it's like, yeah, we're celebrating that. I still play music every week. I did three sets of Glastonbury. Mm. But, yeah, I can flip that into an orchestra, orchestrated piece of music. Because Blueprint, you know, the, the Blueprint of Timeless is that. Yeah. You know, it couldn't have been done then. We tried it. You know, people have tried, you know, and now... They all thought I was mad. I wanted to, when Timeless first came out, I said, let's orchestrate this. And Pete mm. thought I was mad. Mm. Mm. And now it's Hacienda it's, Classics. Yeah. It's Arbita Classics. It's orchestration. People are realising the live elements. And I think Prodigy got that out of any electronic mm. artist before mm. anyone got it. Yeah, right. How to go live yeah, sure. with it. Um, and obviously we were just sh- chasing shirt tails to do that, really. Mm. Do you feel um, as though you, it's taken you until now to become fully fledged as a musician? I, I because think you've it, written every note on that record, haven't well, you, on Journey Man? I've done every single thing and always have done with melody. You know, I'll, I'll sing the drums to drummers, the pattern. You know, they'll then play, we'll improvise. I'll sing all of the cello lines, the, the, the viola lines, the high-end string lines, you know, some of the brass you know, I'm, and I've always done that. And songwriting has been a thing for me, which I kind of, I learned from Judy Zuck, I learned from Thom York. I look at all these people that have written great songs. I think Journeyman's the, the most thorough work. But I want to see, you know, that move forward. I'd love mm. to do a few more orchestrated shows around the world. Yeah. You know, we're doing the Journeyman tour on the 14th of November to the 24th with the ensemble. I, kind of, I guess the ensemble's like, you know, do you want a Ranger of a Sport or do you want the, the full classic orchestra, which is a Vogue? Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Uh, so I've got different ways of one playing the music week in, week out for Metalheads and, and, yep. and, and all the stuff that influences me. Then you've got the ensemble, which is the powerhouse of, of the Journeyman as a collective. Yeah. And then you have, you know, the classic timeless show, which we did at the South Bank, tried and tested. You know, we're doing Roundhouse. Um, so it's a really big thing for me. I think mm. the only thing to what's going to happen now is I am going to direct Timeless, the film, which is going to happen in the next two years. We're about to sign the deal, and it's going to wow. happen. And, and wow. I'm, I'm going to do that. It's a story I've always had. I've had it floating around for 20 years in my head, and it's become a monster that's um, now a controlled beast, if you like. And that is a, a piece of drama? 
it's a it's a revenge tragedy okay. uh, about a fourteen year old kid who, who brings down his nemesis, who's a heroin dealer, and and he's met his mom an addict, and and he has an illness which is called temporal lobe dysfunction. Believe it or not, sine temporal without time is the exact translation. Right. It's very complex. I guess it's and like that's a, tattooed I, on your throat, on your, yeah. on your on your neck. Yeah, I guess it's really Lehane. You know, Lehane, which is one of my all-time favourite films. Amazing Meet, French film. Meets Magnolia, really. Yeah. Chance and Circumstance. Yeah, and I think I the only other thing outside of that mm. um, would be Mother being a tragic opera. Because wow. Mother is a tragic opera. And I was going to say Goldie do. the musical. Okay. Yeah, like, kind timeless, of. Timeless the musical. Yeah, kind of. Thing. <laughs> so, um, but, but I think yeah. Timeless, Timeless first. Wow. We'll do that. And uh, and that, that for me is, a, a, you know, me and a wonderful man called Clint Dyer who's a phenomenal director and a mm. phenomenal actor yeah. in his own right. And I think I need him as the discipline side of it because I have so many great ideas and sometimes I can get carried away. But I think being a creative director and, and him being a very technical and also yeah. creative um, gives me the discipline that I need. So we're going to go forth and, uh, and I'm going to make, make this happen. film I've always wanted to make alongside a great soundtrack. Of course, you know. of course. It, sound, it sounds fascinating. You've, you've done so much fascinating stuff. Sounds like there's some amazing stuff to come in the future. Uh, one thing that we do, though, just before you, you leave us, we always ask for one tune for our guests to select, one track to, uh, that, that you would play to save the world if the aliens <laughs> were debating whether to blow up planet yeah. Earth and uh, yeah. get rid of us or, or keep us here. Uh, you know, if you... If you could pick a track to go, ah, you know what, humanity's all right. You give, yeah, us a, give us a second chance. I, I don't know. I think Trump's already done that. I think he'll blow it up before the aliens do. He may do. <laughs> um, he may, he I just think, do. like Kaiser Soulsake, the one thing the devil always did was make you feel like he never existed. You know, <laughs> we've been tricked into this. Um, yeah. You know, and I think, I think really, you know, we've become so, you know, anaesthetized with everything. If the aliens did land, mm. you know, I mean. Would it be real news or fake news? Yes, exactly, we wouldn't know, yeah, would yeah. we? Yeah. 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 Um, but I think the song that always still makes me smile to this day and, and, and you know, it has to be Mr. Blue Sky, Electric Light Orchestra. It's huge. I love that record. Goldie, thank you so much for uh, for joining us today. It's been fantastic, hasn't it, Eddie? Yeah, Brilliant. it's been amazing. Brilliant. it through your life and fascinating, the, the, the music. And, and how who would have thought that we would have started with the logical song? And ended with ELO <laughs> dealing with one of the uh, you know most important people in in you know I'm going to say black music culture in this in this mm. country. But then it's always about the grey area, isn't it? And you know, and, well, I think for me it's, it's music of black origin. I think I've always been you know being of mixed race. I've always had you know where some of my black friends couldn't understand, some of my white friends don't get it. I'm that person in between. I'm yeah. the, I'm the grey man in that sense, you know. Mm. And, and I think it's. It, 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 it's. I've always been outspoken about music, and I love the influence of all. Uh, when I listen to these records, I hear all of me in it because it's come from me. I think if you feed a kid McDonald's, he will become a beast. If you feed someone the blues and good soul music, he's going to become soulful, man. And mm. that's what this music is. I think. I think people people that make drum and bass music are the champions of this of this world in that sense. And I think, hey, it's a dirty job, but someone's got to do it, you know. And here it is. Trailblazers. Originals.
Trailblazers. Thanks for your ears. We hope you enjoyed Trailblazers. Uh, we love your feedback. So if you want to get in touch with either of us, you can reach out to me via Twitter at EddieTM. That's E-double-D-Y-T-M. Or you can reach out to myself, Nick Hawks, N-I-C-K-H-A-L-K-E-S on uh, Twitter or Facebook. And remember, we've just given you a taste of the, the great music that uh, shaped the journey of our special guest today. Uh, if you want to hear music in full, head over to Deezer.com and you can find special Trailblazers playlists that Eddie and I put together and some special stuff from our guests. And bear in mind that if you enjoyed this stuff on Trailblazers, you'll definitely enjoy the curated playlists that happen on Deezer. Just download the app for free and search for Trailblazers or head to the dance section where you'll find a playlist for just about any genre you can think of in dance. Trailblazers. Thanks so much to Goldie for joining us. Next time on Trailblazers, Mike Pickering. Deezer. Deezer. Originals.